0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to the New Books Network. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. I am honored to be in dialogue today with Dr. Robert Kreese. He is the author of The Leak, Politics, Activists, and Lofts of Trust, Brookhaven National Laboratory, published by MIT Press 2022. Robert It's an honor to be
1: in dialogue with you today. Thank you, Ari. It's really a thrill to be able to talk about the book. I mean, I've spent so much time um, and thought working on it. Now at last I can talk about it.
0: Thank you. I couldn't be more grateful. Thank you for everything you invested in this masterpiece. It was really a remarkable book to read and to internalize. Oh, excellent. Thank you. To begin, uh, kindly tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? Where did you go to school? What formative events in your life inspired your academic journey and intellectual formation?
1: Well, I was born in Philadelphia and I went to school at uh, Amherst College and then graduate school at Columbia. And I started, I started out as a philosopher. I got a PhD in philosophy from, from Columbia, and I was interested in, uh, you know, at that time, I was not interested in science um, very much at all. And I was interested in philosophy. I worked on Kant and Heidegger and so forth. But while I was a graduate student, I started uh, partly to make money, I started uh, writing articles about science with a friend of mine, uh, Charles Mann. I don't know know if you know Charles Mann. He's become a pretty renowned author now. He wrote the book 1491, uh, 1493, and he was my he was my roommate at Amherst. He was my college roommate, and so we began writing about uh, scientific episodes and and developments. Um, and I began to realize um, that I that what philosophers uh, when philosophers wrote about science, they wrote about highly technical things that had very little to do. With um, what it was like to run a scientific facility in the middle of a political and social environment, so that got me um, very interested in philosophy of science, and I was I became a professor at Stony Brook University, which is in the middle of Long Island, New York, and that's where I am now. I'm I'm actually chair of the philosophy department, but I still write a lot about science, and and this particular episode just completely fascinated me. What inspired you to write this book? What do you hope readers will learn and glean from it? Well, a few things. Most of all, it's about today. It, it, the episode involved conspiracy theories, conspiracy theories that couldn't be stopped, conspiracy theories that caused damage to, um, to good institutions, um, and most celebrities, getting involved in causes that involve science denial, celebrities having access to politicians and scientists not having access to politicians, celebrities becoming politicians. Um, All of these episodes today were um, where uh, uh, all these, uh, everything that happened 25 years ago is happening today. So, I mean, partly I started writing about it as as an interesting episode in in the history of, of United States science after World War II, but this particular episode uh, seems relevant to a lot of what's happening today. Can you elaborate on any parallels between the
0: lessons of your book and controversies about science and society in the aftermath of covid 19
1: well uh, there's as, as I said there's there's a lot of parallels there's um, the false information that um, that is amplified by media outlets there are conspiracy theories that are propagated by celebrities there's denial of scientific authorities, you know, and Fauci deny. there's the equivalent of Fauci denial occurred um, in those days. There's there's the, um, and in, in particular, one of the things that bothered me was that um, conspiracy theories at that time, or you know how today, uh, conspiracy theories require Sowing distrust in reputable organizations. So, if you say the election is stolen, let's say you have to cast doubt on, on institutions, uh, you know, v- voting machine companies say that that, um, that 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 reported different results. Well, at the same time, the to to, to say that um, to, uh, say the water was poisoned required sowing distrust in the institutions. That, that said it wasn't uh, poisoned, that who, whose responsibility it was to monitor the water and make sure that it was safe. I, d- I didn't say that correctly. Let, let me say it a little bit. Sure. Part of what happened at the time was that there was a, a small leak of radiation containing water um, that was in the, that was caused by the, they came from the spent fuel pool of the research reactor at Brookhaven. It went into the groundwater now, this this uh, the the the, um, the the leak was not of any health hazard to anybody. That was um, and that was the conclusion of federal, state, local officials, EPA officials, and so forth. But it was in the groundwater. The groundwater is a very emotional issue, and the local um, the, the the local water agency, Suffolk County Water Authority, um, declared that it was. Uh, declared that it was safe, but the um, the anti-reactor uh, activists had to, in order to justify their position, they had to, to um, challenge the findings of that agency.
0: Can you kindly share a summary of your book of its findings and of the story that it tells?
1: Well, the book is about how um, First of all, uh, let me say, the, the book is about an episode at Brookhaven National Laboratory. Brookhaven was a laboratory established right after World War II, and it was established in order to build scientific instruments that were too big for universities or industries to afford by themselves. That is, you know, right after World War II, the scale of scientific instruments just jumped by an order of magnitude. And so to build things like particle accelerators and research reactors, you had to have um, them not at one university, but you had to, a, had to have a consortium of universities run them. So this was, um, the, the lab was founded right after World War II. And the one of the facilities they built was a research reactor called the High Flux Beam Reactor. And it had the reactor next to it had a had a um, fuel uh, had a pool where the spent uh, fuel elements were stored, and it was a leak from that that um, began the controversy that I wrote about. That is, a small leak of water from that pool was it it uh, dropped into this highly volatile environment causing a media, political, social uproar that resulted in the firing of the contractor of the laboratory, the resignation of the director, the uh, closing of the high-flux beam reactor, and and even calls to close the reactor itself. I mean, sorry, even calls to close the laboratory itself. Hmm.
0: How did you locate the individuals you interviewed in the process of preparing and researching this book?
1: Well, that's interesting. I wrote it during the pandemic. So I met very few of them face to face, but because of the lockdowns, people were very happy to speak by phone. So as long as I could get somebody's phone number, I uh, they were often very happy to, to speak with me. I mean, the uh, w- one of the, the players in the story was the the former president of Stony Brook University, Shirley Kenney. You know, when she was president at at Stony Brook, I was um I, I spoke with her maybe for five or ten minutes at a time. We spent hours on the phone. Her she went over her her um her calendar with me and we located specific events that she'd been involved with so it was um, a a lot of the conversation was by phone I spoke with two department former department of energy secretaries uh, by phone I spoke to Christy Brinkley by phone Um, it was quite a lot of fun so that's how I contacted people Uh, what is a
0: non-problem can you explain what this term means? What does this concept mean in the context of the story that you tell in your book?
1: Well, let me give a little bit of a background about the, the statement. The, um, there was a meeting at the laboratory of uh, the of scientists right after the contractor was fired. And the scientists were uh, well, there was a meeting between the scientists and a Department of Energy representative, and the scientists were saying, "What? What? Why is there a controversy about the reactor? There, this um, it's not of any danger to anyone. The the numbers show that the studies show that this is a non problem." And the Department of Energy um, representative said quite simply on long island non problems are the ones that are hardest to deal with now what he meant by that was that you know look this is not a technical issue this is an issue about public understanding of science and that that's not the kind of issue that, that that's not the kind of of pro, of uh, problem and solution that you're talking about you have to develop different ways to address the community rather than rather than through just scientific studies. So I think it was a rather clever statement. I mean they they the scientists assumed I think that you just get somebody some some politician to go out to the community and say this isn't an issue this isn't a problem and just say it loudly and continuously enough and that the problem would vanish. Well that's not uh that's not how you solve these kind of questions you have to have a different kind of, of way of addressing the uh, the local communities. What
0: is tritium? can you explain its chemical properties especially to our listeners that uh, do not have the science background
1: to know Well tritium was what the whole issue revolved around. Tritium is an isotope of hydrogen you know normal hydrogen has one proton in the nucleus and one electron. And uh, it has isotopes that are different versions of the nucleus. So deuterium is, or so-called heavy water, is, has hydrogen with a proton and a, new, and a neutron. Tritium has um, a proton and two neutrons and tritium is radioactive. And it's, it's what scientists call a soft beta emitter. It, it, it emits uh, beta radiation, but it's not a very dangerous form of radiation. Its radiation can be stopped by a single piece of paper, and it it also decays um, relatively quickly. Its half-life is 12.3 years. So water-containing tritium wound up in the leak leak of the title of the book was from the spent fuel pool of the reactor, and it, it went into the groundwater and flowed towards the laboratory boundary. Now, it wasn't in drinking water, either for the laboratory or the community. And by the time it reached the border, it would have all but disappeared. So that's um, so it's a and, and it's a kind of of substance that's used as a tracer. I mean, hydrogeologists use tritium as a tracer to uh, to, to trace groundwater. It's used in. Uh, it's used on watches, you know, the the self, the the glowing watches, that um, self illuminating watches, and it's used in, you know, those exit signs that uh, that are self illuminating. After the World Trade Center um, bombings, the um, a lot of buildings, federal buildings, were we um, were equipped with uh, self illuminating exit signs. Well, tritium is the substance that's used in that because it, it, it glows, but it is also not particularly dangerous. So, but tritium was the substance that was involved in the leak. And the whole episode that I'm writing about uh, occurred when news of this leak dropped into the highly volatile Long Island community. And their reaction to it.
0: There's a passage in your book that I'd be curious to ask you about. It's on page 142. You write the following October 1st was the eve of Rosh Hashanah, and Rabbi Joseph Topek was presiding over the ceremony at Stony Brook University. Rabbi Topek spoke of Tashli, the Rosh Hashanah ritual, ritual which, as per Mika, 719, one throws one's sins into the pure flowing waters. Topek made a flippant remark that, thanks to the lab down the street, he was not sure about the purity of the local waters. Michael Marks, a Stony Brook physicist who performed experiments at the lab, was appalled, and after the ceremony upbraided his friend Topek and explain that the tritium at Brookhaven was not in the local waters. Can you contextualize this episode for us? Can you explain what happened and why it is significant? Um,
1: yes, that's a very I think that's a very uh, important and very symbolic event, which is that, um, as I mentioned, this this leak was discovered from the spent fuel pool of Brookhaven's reactor and and again I should say it's not that the leak wasn't from the reactor itself the reactor itself was the research reactor itself was not um uh uh, it was safely operating but it came from the spent fuel pool and it it um that the leak took place in the groundwater. But it wouldn't. the The groundwater wasn't in uh, the leak. wasn't drinking water, and it wouldn't have reached the um, the 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 border of the lab. But the the activists, the celebrities, the politicians all made it sound like the leak was all over, not just in the laboratory, but all over Long Island, and they in in. in it made it made it seem like it it was all over. And so um, if you only knew about what was happening from the headlines, then you thought that this leak was was endangering the entire community. And so when Topic said that, it indicated the success of this strategy. It the politicians, the celebrities had made it seem like, the um, it was a meme that Brookhaven was polluting the um, the entire community. So Topek said this. He was said it offhandedly, and Michael Marks, who was a physicist at at um, Stony Brook, who worked at Brookhaven uh, a lot, you know, um, reprimanded him, showed him studies, talked to him, and um, uh, Rabbi Topek was very um, was. Um, very, um, he was very embarrassed that he had, uh, at, at, at what it said. But, but your question was, why, why was it, why was that symbolic? It was symbolic because the activists had successfully memed the fact that Brookhaven had endangered the environment. Thank you for clarifying.
0: Who is Christy Brinkley? What role did she play in this story can she you played, tell us about the model and actress christy brinkley
1: she played a very important role she was a she wasn't involved at the very beginning of the anti-reactor activism but she was involved um, she was involved a little bit later she had you know she had grown up in california she had she was very interested in having a safe environment she had, had children and she heard about this reactor and thought that it was a, a danger to long island and so she be, became involved in the um, the anti brookhaven uh, a- activism and her um, she was also a democratic party uh, influencer she was she had a home in um, in uh, East Hampton, which is a very kind of wealthy enclave of uh, celebrity full enclave at the at the end of uh, Long Island. And what was important about her was that she had access because she was a Democratic Party influencer. She had access. So she met personally several times with Um, Bill Richardson, the Department of Energy Secretary, and I spoke to many people, several activists, who said that she was responsible for the closing of the reactor. And even, um, and I think she herself claimed to be responsible in in several um, interviews that she had. So she had, whereas some scientists tried to meet with attempted to meet with uh, Richardson, the Department of Energy secretary, um, and were um, were refused, she was able to meet with him and lobbied against the reactor. And shortly after the last meeting that she had with the Department of Energy secretary, he decided to terminate the reactor. In light
0: of your reply, uh, can you say more about the significance of Bill Richardson in your book and narrative?
1: Well, the um, the first, when the leak was discovered, the first, uh, the Department of Energy Secretary was Federico Pena, and Pena decided to, to terminate the Brookhaven's contractor and um, start a new competition for a, n- a new contractor to run Brookhaven. And, but he resigned after a year, he stepped down after a year to do something else and Bill Richardson took over. So Richardson was, um, when he took over, he was briefed that the fate of Brookhaven's reactor was one of the key issues that was on his plate. And um, But he had very close contacts to the um, activists um, he literally played ball with some of them when he would visit it, when he would visit um, um, East Hampton, um, and so he was the person whom the activists lobbied, and he was the person to whom, uh, with whom Christie Brinkley met, and he he decided to terminate to terminate the reactor, and when he terminated it, the um, he one interesting thing is he didn't tell the laboratory he kind of ambushed the laboratory. He, he didn't tell the director. He didn't tell anyone in the scientific community. So the, lab, the laboratory was quite surprised by it. What role did
0: Montel Williams and the Montel Williams show play in this episode and in the history of the events that you narrate?
1: That, that was a very important event. Um, one of the celebrities involved in the anti Brookhaven movement was actor Alec Baldwin. Now um, Baldwin was um, had a lot of celebrity contacts he was you know he was well connected in the entertainment world, and one of his good friends was um, was Montel Williams? Now, celebrities are a boon to causes. I mean, as as I'm sure you know, they're they they used to be on camera. They know how to get the camera to to um. Uh, they know how to uh, attract the attention of a camera. They're very magnetic. They're very charismatic. Um, and so he was able to put on a good show in his TV appearances, and he um he arranged with Montel Williams an appearance. Of himself and the organization that he was with, called Star, standing for Truth About Radiation, um, and it was the the show aired in right after the new manager took over in January of 1998, and it was a powerful show. I mean, they he had he accused the laboratory of increasing the radiation of uh, the the. Um, the, the incidence of radiation on Long Island by about 200 to 300 uh, percent, which is not true. And he accused Brookhaven of being responsible for uh, heightened incidences of a type of cancer called rab- rhabdomyosarcoma, which is also not true because the rate of rhabdomyosarcoma on, on Long Island and Suffolk County was not significantly. Well, it was about average uh, anywhere else. And it's also the American, according to the American Cancer Society, it's also the uh, rhabdomyosarcoma is also not caused by radiation. It's caused by things like genetic factors, um, um, environmental factors. But what he did was that uh, he, uh, Baldwin brought an eight-year-old child with rhabdomyosarcoma on the program and had the child say that um, he thought that the cause of his cancer was Brookhaven Lab. Now it was an, a very emotional scene. If you look at it, you your heart goes out to this child. But to take the child and put the child on a TV show um, and say that was um, was simply a, um, that was simply false. A powerful moment, but false. Now the thing was, though, that the um, um, Montel Williams show was seen by nine million people, and it was re- resulted in hundreds of phone calls and lots of t- donations to um, to Star, the the organization uh, that uh, Baldwin was with. So it was a it was a very important moment. It was an example of how. Celebrities can use television to super spread misinformation. So it was a very important moment in the story that I tell. Can you comment on the significance of Admiral
0: Watkins, the former Department of Energy secretary, in the events that you portray? Why is he a key figure?
1: Watkins isn't a key figure. What, what
0: do you mean? You're, you're probably- he comes up very often in your book, and I was wondering if you could comment on his role in the story, Admiral Watkins?
1: He was a Department of Energy secretary before, about, I don't know, seven, eight years before the events. And he he comes up because he was very important in the... uh, There was a certain moment... Wait, let me step back a little bit. For a long time, the national laboratories were virtually immune from environment from local state environmental regulations they were federal property so they were exempt from state and local um, regulations as time went on environmental um, environmental concerns grew and grew and local um, the uh, state and local environmental agencies um, began demanding more and more the authority to rule to To govern um, national laboratories, and in um, it, 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 sort of crested late nineteen eighties, early nineteen nineties, with the um, in several episodes, including Rocky Flats, um, where the um, uh, which had lots of uh, lots of um, radioactive uh, pollution. And Admiral Watkins was very concerned with that, and he sent in teams called Tiger Teams to every single national laboratory to investigate the um, their their how they handle their um, environmental wastes. So that's the um, that's his role. He's part of the kind of prequel to a uh, prelude to the story.
0: What was the tritium remediation project? Can you tell us about that?
1: Well, as um, as I mentioned, the um, the trigger to this episode was a leak of tritium discovered from the spent fuel pool. So it it had uh, the the leak it the pool had been leaking for about twelve years, and so it had, it had gotten I don't know a few hundred feet from in the groundwater down um, in, uh, in in the groundwater. And so the question was that the, 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 contra- as a result of the controversy, the Department of Energy decided to remediate the, uh, the leak, which is to try to, um, uh, to, to try to uh, repair it, to, to, to fix it. And then what they decided to do was to drill wells at one of the leading edges of the plume, pump out the water and send it back to um, more upstream, put in the groundwater again, so that by the time it went further down in the groundwater, it would all decay and dilute to well below, um, to, uh, to, to, uh, well below the, the drinking standard. What does your book teach us about epistemology?
0: what are your book's lessons about the character of truth?
1: It's not all about numbers. The, the uh, scientists viewed um, the health safety issues in terms of numbers. How much how much radiation was there? How dangerous was it? How vulnerable, how susceptible are human beings to, um, uh, to those dangers? But the community viewed it differently. The community viewed it in terms of um, trust in the institution, trust in the the scientists who who talked about those numbers. Um, it was entirely different concerns. So I guess if it's if there's anything about epistemology, it's that the um, scientists and, and the community are interested and have very different sets of values about what they consider safe. What
0: is your book's
1: contribution to the history of science and technology? Well, for one thing, I think it it deals with an episode that's very little uh, talked about. People tend to talk about how how scientific institutions develop, about the discoveries, about the biographies of people inside of them, Um, whereas my book deals with the relation between the, the scientific laboratories and the community. And I think that's a very important Uh, a a very important thing to to study. What can go wrong with that? I mean, the whole relation between a laboratory and the community, (laughs) excuse me, has to do with trust. How is that trust established? How is it broken? How, when it's broken, can it be reestablished? There was, um, and that's going to be important for every single scientific, major scientific facility in the 21st century. There was a lessons learned conference um, a little bit after the, the episodes that um, the episodes at the beginning of the book, where different people came and they talked about what they thought were the, the lessons of this, this, this episode at, at Brookhaven National Laboratory. And the first slide, I'll, I'll never forget it because I was at this conference, but um, there was somebody from Fermi Lab, which is a national laboratory outside Chicago, and her first slide was. Brookhaven, there but for the grace of God. And what she meant was what happened at Brookhaven could happen anywhere. It could happen even at Fermilab, which doesn't even have a reactor. And so it's important, you you asked about the contribution. The contribution is to show the kinds of things that happen if the relations between a scientific facility and the surrounding communities are mishandled. It's a kind of issue that is going to have to be faced by um, in the foreseeable future.
0: In what ways does your book contribute to the history and historiography of the 1990s?
1: It has to do with the uh, relations between science and society. Then in the 1990s was a certain particular moment when scientific facilities were becoming vulnerable to how they were perceived by the local communities. I mean, remember, this was the time shortly after some major disasters involving um, large facilities. Uh, Three Mile Island, 1979. Bhopal, 1980, um, a chemical disaster in India. Chernobyl, 1986. So all this kind of set the stage for a a very sensitive and volatile relation between large facilities dealing with science and the communities. I think that's the, um, I would say that's the, uh, that's the contribution. There's a passage I'd be curious
0: to draw your attention to. You write as follows on page 20. The, The Long Island community. Was composed of diverse groups whose members had varying attitudes and concerns about the presence of a federally sponsored atomic laboratory in their midst. The tens of thousands of people who attended popular open houses and school children who visited on field trips were generally excited about the lab and its science. Various community groups contacted the lab's speakers bureau to invite lab scientists to address them, but many others in the community either did not know what the lab did or were suspicious of its activities, with some motivated to organize and seek improvements in performance or to demand explanations. Long Island's civic advocacy groups and anti-nuclear activists therefore had a range of aims and intentions, some sought a of dialogue with the lab over environmental issues, while others simply wanted it closed. Can you contextualize this passage for us and say more about what's going on?
1: Well, that's an interesting question. Basically, the idea is that um, there is no such thing as the community with a capital C. There are always many, many communities. Now, to answer the first part, oh, uh, um, to respond to the f- first part of the passage you read, right after World War II, scientists, particularly physicists, had a huge reputation. It, the atomic bomb had, had a, played an important role, along with radar, in, in stopping the war. And so, uh, scientists, physicists were, you know, authoritative, important figures. Theoretical physicists uh, appeared in their pictures appeared in the pages of uh, Fortune magazine. But at the same time, because the war had been, um, because of the the role of the atomic bomb, the um, there was an ambivalent reaction to it. There were uh, on the the, uh, uh, on, on the one hand, you had there were people who um, who were very enthusiastic about atomic energy, and then there were people who whose reaction was very negative. And so you have sets of communities. What, what I was talking about in that passage is you have sets of communities with different attitudes towards nuclear reactors, atomic energy, physicists who, who carried them out. Now, when Brookhaven Opened the, the Brook um, Brookhaven, as I said, was founded right after World War II. Brookhaven um, the, the, it it was founded on the site of an old army camp called Camp Upton, um, and the on the, the first day that it opened, um, somebody a um, somebody from building and grounds came in and and turned on the old um, heating plant from the um, from Camp Upton, and it sent a huge plume of smoke into the sky. It was an oil-burning plant. And a neighbor called and complained that that smoke was radioactive and was contaminating her her property. Now, this had nothing to do with radiation. There were no scientists on the site yet. There was no radiation on the site yet. But that showed, literally from day one, that people would be suspicious of a national laboratory and would have um and and that the laboratory would have community relations issues again literally from from day one so the, the 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 result was there were a set of communities with different attitudes the laboratory tried to cope with that by sending speakers to the uh into the community um but as the book showed that that wasn't enough more uh more was needed but there would um there were people who every time there was a sonic well, not every time, but but sometimes there would be sonic booms and the laboratory would get calls um, wondering if there had been an atomic explosion at the laboratory. People, the laboratory was often said to be um, a place where, that housed UFOs or the, um, the, um, the, the sometimes um, uh, one one woman called the laboratory and said that her ducks had become radioactive, uh, a local farmer. And so one of the scientists went out in with a Geiger counter to prove to her that the her ducks were not radioactive. But later, uh, about the time that I write about, it would take more than Geiger counters to reassure some members of the community that... Um, about the safety of the laboratory.
0: What is groundwater? Can you explain what it is for those who might not have the science background to understand?
1: Groundwater is uh, underneath Underneath the soil, is a, um, a reservoir of water that is... That is um, that's the water that, that wells tap into, for instance. That usually sit upon uh, sit atop a um, um, sit sit atop some sort of layer of of clay, and the groundwater flows in a certain direction. On Long Island, it, it's as if Long Island were were tilted, and the water slowly flows to the south. It flows about a foot a day. Now, since groundwater is the source of our water supply. Um it's it's kind of a very sensitive issue. If you pollute the water supply, then then uh, you, know, polluting the water supply is very dangerous. So it so when it was announced that Brookhaven's leak had gone into the groundwater, it caused uh, a lot of concern. Can you tell us about
0: Peter Bond? Why is he a noteworthy character in the story you tell
1: in this book? Well, Peter Bond, whom I wrote the story with, was the interim director of the laboratory at a certain point? I mean, he had been head of the physics department, um, and then he became when when the um, when the previous director stepped down, he um, an, another another person stepped in as interim director, but that person um, also stepped down. In about a month and a half, and then Peter Bond took over, and Peter Bond continued to be the interim director until the new manager took over in um, in at the beginning of March in nineteen ninety eight. So he was um, he kept the place going until the new um, uh, and, and and served as, the, as as director until the uh, the new management um, organization came in.
0: Who was Jean Manhopt? Can you explain why he's a significant character in his own right in your story?
1: You mean Jean Manhopt?
0: Jean Manhopt. Who was... is Jean Manhopt? Why is Jean an important character in your story?
1: Well, for a while there, the, the, the 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 relation between the laboratory and the surrounding community is a very delicate one. And Gene Manhaupt and a few others tried to form an organization in which the uh, which could serve as a kind of buffer between the two. That the um, they would invite invite scientists to to talk to their group. They recruited uh, Mannhaupt was a, um, a local environmentalist and a, a, a political activist um, who came from um, uh, who came from the that um, the area, I think she came from just west of the laboratory. And so she founded this group that, that, um, that coordinated, it uh, was a, a kind of a d- discussion group, investigative group um, about the um, activities of the laboratory serving as a buffer between uh, the laboratory and the community. And in the course of the story, her group becomes much less important than the celebrity-driven organization led by Baldwin and Brinkley. Baldwin was a major, Alec Baldwin was a major character in The Activist Against the um, the Laboratory. He had lots of media communications, uh, uh, media contacts. He was a, um, he could get on the, uh, I'm sorry, Ari, I'm losing the, the train. That's OK. Um, uh, Alec Baldwin was a major figure in the activism against the laboratory. He was the most visible member of the group. He had lots of media contacts. He arranged the Alec Baldwin uh, Alec Baldwin show. He arranged the Montel Williams show, um, and everybody knew him. He was recognizable. He was a major figure. There are, I know, some scientists at the laboratory who, whenever they hear him um on the um New York introducing the New York Philharmonic, they turn it off because they they they're so annoyed about about what he had done 25 years ago. Can you say some more about Federico Pena,
0: the former Secretary of Energy? What was his role in the events that you portray?
1: Well Federico Peña became Department of Energy Secretary just as the events were unfolding. I think he was approved in March of 1997 and when, when the, um, uh, the uh, after the leak had been discovered and he was the one who decided to cancel the contract of the existing manager of the laboratory as called Associated Universities Incorporated. And he was um, and after he canceled the contract, he announced that um, he that there would be an environmental impact statement to determine the uh, whether the reactor would be restarted. And he kept yeah, he kept postponing the deadlines to when it would uh, when that environmental impact statement would be. Um, would be completed, but before it was completed, he stepped down and Bill Richardson took over. Now, I think in, in the book, I said that I think that he was sensitive about the problem at Brookhaven because a year before, when he had been department of <coughs> transportation secretary, he had, um, there had been a, a crash of a value jet airline um, and at first, he said that ValueJet was a safe airline, but documents surfaced that showed that that, that uh, there were problems with ValueJet, and they were tr- and that was tremendously embarrassing to him and the the um, Department of Transportation. And so he was uh, Penny. I think was hypersensitive about about dealing with um, with uh, problems that uh, with problems like that.
0: Another individual. I- be interested to ask you about is John Marburger. Can you comment on why he is a person of consequence in the events of your book?
1: Oh, I think Marburger is one of the most important characters. And Marburger was a president of Stony Brook. And he was known for being able to to solve controversies he was for instance there was a um, a power reactor was being built nearby on Long Island in the 1970s early 1980s and it was very controversial and the governor Cuomo at the time appointed him to lead a commission to determine um, what to do about it and Marburger managed to run a set uh, a, a committee that who Was composed of everything from most extreme anti-nuclear activists to uh, to scientists, and managed to get them to work together. So he was he was he had an amazing ability to to get people to work together. Part of it was he had a lot of experience when when he was uh, he was a professor at the University of California, and he ran his own show about uh, about physics, and so he was used to presenting himself to the public. Okay. And what to say, even how to dress, how to how to um, how to um, to handle different kinds of questions. So he was um, he 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 had retired from the presidency of Stony Brook, and he um, but he became the 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 um, lab director of the group that uh, came in to manage the laboratory. And he just had an incredible ability to speak to groups of highly emotionally charged people, highly emotionally charged um, uh, uh, meetings, and to get everyone to calm down and to work together. And he, uh, he was one of the keys, I think, as to why the laboratory came through. Um, all of this uh, the, this episode.
0: Another person I'd like to ask you about is Bill Smith. Why is he a person of prominence in the events you
1: depict? He, Bill Smith was a um, very he was a, a fisherman. He um, he ran, a group called Fish Unlimited. And he was very concerned with um, pollution in the environment, especially in the Pecanic River, which is, which is a river that flows through uh, Brookhaven. And he initiated a lot of the, the, um, um, the activity, um, uh, a lot of the protests against the laboratory. And he was very, very aggressive, very vocal, The media loved to quote him on pictures of him, so he was he was one of the big movers and shakers in the um, anti nuclear movement. He, from what I understand, was the person who recruited Alec Baldwin into the cause. He said he just called called up Baldwin on in Amagansett, which is where um, where I think uh, Baldwin uh, had a house met him at a local diner and convinced him to join the cause. So Smith was a a major player. What does your book teach us about trust and trustworthiness?
0: Can you elaborate on these recurrent themes as they come up in your narrative?
1: While writing this book, I asked people what the lesson was. What lesson can we draw uh, from this 25 years later? Um, What should have gone better? What, what was needed? And one of the people, Department of Energy uh, official named Martha Krebs, um, who was a player in this story, said, I, I asked her that question, she paused, and then she said, trusting relationships, trusting relationships between everybody. And I think that's one of the keys. One of the, the, the um, you know, Marburger once told me that. Uh, what happened to Brookhaven was was a catastrophe in the engineering sense of the word. Uh, catastrophe meaning that when, when you have a large, complicated piece of machinery and it becomes out of sync with the environment, then a tiny tweak will cause the whole thing to crash to the ground. And uh, I mean, for instance, the, the Challenger launch disaster, for instance, the um all it took was this, this one O-ring to to Fail and the entire um, the spacecraft uh, was destroyed. Well, that was the same with uh, the, uh, a similar thing happened at Brookhaven, where you had the the laboratory was um, out of sync with the local communities. That all it took was one tweak, which was this um, the 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 this tritium leak to cause this firestorm. And so Martha Krebs put her finger on it, I think, when she said, when she talked about trust, because trust was what would have prevented that that, uh, the the facility, the the laboratory from becoming out of sync with uh, with the environment. You needed a lot more trusting relationships between the people in the laboratory and the politicians who managed it and the community in which it was located. Can you tell us about Bill Gunther? Why is he
0: a person of prominence in the events you depict?
1: Gunther was um, one of the the, the scientists who, who um, let me stop and think a little bit. Um, I've forgotten his title. Do you do you remember his title? Do you have his title there? I could look it up. I don't I have think it. He was So Gunther, I think, uh, G- Gunther was one of the scientists having to do with environmental health and safety. And he was, but he was not only one of the scientists there, he was a community, he, um, he also had a lot to do with explaining what was happening to the local community. So he was, um, he was one of the interfaces. And so he had to deal with a lot of the, um, uh, a lot of the angry activists. He was one of the, he was a, a person who was on the um, Montel. The Montel Williams producers interviewed a number of people at the laboratory. They um, the laboratory actually had them interview lots of women who had children and brought the children to the lab to sort of show how safe the laboratory was. The, that footage was not used in the in the, the Montel Williams show. They did use Bill Gunther, and on the show, they kind of mocked Bill Gunther. But Bill Gunther was, was one of the really solid um, environmental safety, um, health and safety um, uh, scientists who, who had to deal with the public.
0: You have a quotation that I'd be curious to ask you about. On page 111, you write as follows. On June 3rd, a researcher was preparing to irradiate a superconductor material at the Brookhaven Medical Research Reactor, BMRR, and tested a sample of surround wrap to see if he could wrap samples in it. Unbeknownst to him, one component of Saran Wrap is chlorine, which becomes radioactive by capturing a neutron and becoming radioactive Cl-38. Cl-38. He and four others received a minor exposure, and the, and the Cl-38, which was a half-life of 38 minutes, vanished quickly. No radiation was released from the building. Under ordinary circumstances, the harmless incident would have been investigated and addressed internally. The Environmental Protection Agency and Suffolk County officials who investigated called the incident minor, but again, a press release had to be issued. Newsday's headline erroneously shouted, that Brookhaven had another quote-unquote leak. While the text of the article said that quote-unquote there was no radiation leak from the building, that word in the title was the least part that most readers saw. Can you unpack this? Can you describe what is being described, what is being alluded to in that passage?
1: Well, here's what's happening when you um at a, at a certain moment um a kind of uh, uh what might be called fishbowling takes place that is when suddenly media political um attention is directed towards to, towards something every aspect of it is scrutinized every aspect of it is, is looked into it's as if you look at something with a magnifying glass so that happened. That happens to people. You know, someone like uh, Hillary Clinton. You know, her to people, everything when she sneezes, people pay attention to it. People are are um, pay attention to her every uh, her every move. Now, that happened to Brookhaven at this time. Everything was. Um, they were required by the Department of Energy to issue a, um, a press release for every tiny thing that went wrong. And so it looked like the place was, was full of, um, of, you know, then, things, uh, things that were falling apart. Now, here was a case that in any other year would um, this episode where there was a tiny amount of radiation but of no danger to to anybody, this would have been just dealt with internally but um, because it was not a a hazard but because of the hypersensitive atmosphere, because of the fish bowling, it was made public and it, it was made to seem like part of a big picture in which Brookhaven was a dangerous place. But that wasn't the only episode. There were, there were others too. As, as I write at, the, at one of the medical clinics at Brookhaven, um, one of the patients got a bee sting. That bee sting had to be written up. And you know when I came across this document of this, this official occurrence report of a bee sting taking place, I laughed. And I thought this had to have been... satire they had to have been mocking the process but no it was a real document and it describes very clearly what what kind of um what the wound looks like and what was done and and how the patient was was treated and so that's an example um you asked what role what this indicated it indicated the kind of fish bowling that the laboratory was was um was put into. And again, it's a, the fishbowling is something that not only institutions, but also people and, and other agencies go through where it, they're, they're examined with a fine tooth comb by people who want to see if there's anything wrong. Another passage, if you don't mind, that I'd like to
0: draw your attention to is on page 110. It's fairly lengthy, but I'll do my best to share it rather quickly. Um, you write as follows. Until this point, most of the civic and community groups interacting with the lab had focused on groundwater. STAR, however, was explicitly an anti nuclear group whose aim was to close the lab's reactors and realized that its best line of attack would be to tie up the EIS process. Meanwhile, activists staged demonstrations that were combinations of protests and popular entertainment. July 4th happened to be the day of the landing on Mars of the Pathfinder Robotics spacecraft, an event avidly followed by millions of people on television, and the internet was a celebration of science and technology. It was also a day that anti-nuclear activists staged picnic and protest outside The lab gates, the flyer urged, close the reactors, clean up the mess, convert the lab to non-nuclear uses. Signage included skull and crossbones images and mushroom clouds. Slogans were about, quote unquote, 50 years of contamination and saving children. The demonstrators planted a flower garden at the lab entrance to commemorate the Chernobyl disaster. Brookhaven scientists continued to scoff at such people and their antics until at least the summer of 1997. For them, the anti nuclear activists were living in an alternate universe where the only trustworthy evidence was that supporting their convictions, no matter how unreliable the information or its source. It seemed to go without saying that their statements. Easily refutable if one bothered to check and over-the-top imagery delegitimize them and their cause, making it seem like there was no point paying attention to it. A visiting scientist recalled leaving the lab for lunch one day and driving past a group of activists protesting the HFBR. One of them was dressed as Jesus and carried a cross. I said to my companion, "Look at them, who would take them seriously? How wrong we were!" Can you say about more? Can you say more about what you mean and about what is going on in this passage?
1: Well, that that's interesting. The passage is is has a lot in it. Um, you know, the bi- bivalent relation, the bivalent attitude of the public towards science. Some celebratory, others uh, fearful, the pageantry of protests, Um, but at the very end uh, I think the point is the obliviousness of scientists themselves. Scientists at the laboratory thought that there wasn't much to worry, Uh, a a large number of them thought that there was not much to worry about, and they took a look at these, these people dressed as Skeletons and mushroom clouds outside the laboratory. The protesters, people dressed as Jesus, carrying crosses, and they thought this is ridiculous. We don't have to worry about them. But these people were very—it um, was, you know, eye candy for media. They were the people who made it on on um, on media programs. They were the people who uh, made headlines. And so it that that, that passage. The First part of my answer to you is that passage indicated the uh, the complete disparity between the the attitude of many scientists um, and the um, and the protesters themselves. They the scientists thought there was nothing um, nothing much had to be done with them because there had to be done about them because they were um, they were obviously um, out of touch. So. Um, so that's one thing. Another thing that the passage in the passage that you mentioned was pageantry, the pageantry, the protests. There, there's a sense that that the, um, you know, conspiracy theories have what I call the the three C's, the um, conspiracy, conviction, and community. Conspiracy is that all the information you're getting is um, uh, has been cooked, has been made up. The conviction is that they are convinced that they that there is a certain answer that the um, that there's a certain truth going on that they're being um, that the activists are being um, denied, and the third part is community. The uh, activists often protest in communities where they um, that that are uh, that, that are. Um, they that are celebratory. They 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 dress up. They celebrate. These communities are these these um, the 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 protests are at once expressions of anger but also of community. So um, I mean, remember um, January sixth. The um, how how many of the. Um, uh, protests. The participants dressed up in wild costumes. Well, they they did that outside the gates of Brookhaven as well too. So the you mentioned the pageantry. This is also the this was also in the, the passage. But at the very beginning, the um, what the passage was about was the bivalence of the attitude, popular attitude towards science at the time. At the same time, you have people watching television about this this spacecraft landing. At the same time, you have this. Um, um, the, the, uh, these, these protests against a major scientific facility that had, that had been awarded four Nobel prizes. What does your book teach us about ethics? Well, that's an interesting question. In a funny way, it doesn't teach very much about ethics. I mean, people group, these groups of people, these individuals were acting as they typically do. The scientists were acting as, as scientists, the media was acting as the media does. Um, anti-nuclear activists had their own cause Uh, politicians were responding to their constituents and pursuing their ambitions Um, so you know things were happening in a funny way the way that they always do but in a deeper way I think the the book has a lot to say about ethics Um, it's about the moral imperative of making wise decisions on issues that involve health safety and the environment you know like like look was it was it a wise decision to close the research reactor at Brookhaven National Laboratory? And I don't know. The, the, the choice of what science to do or what risks to run, you know, society makes those decisions. Um, you know, what science to pursue to pursue, and how, uh, what instruments to pursue them, society makes those decisions. Um, but what, was that decision made, made wisely and that I am sure about, and it becomes clear in the book, I hope. Um, no, it wasn't made wisely. The, it was driven by celebrity influence, by amoral politicians, by political changes, and by fear-mongering um, and, and, and more. So you know, even if you wanted the reactor closed, if you looked at the way that decision was made, it ought to be appalling that, that the, the way that decision was was made, e- even if you wanted the reactor closed, th- this was the wrong way to, to make that decision. So what I think the book does is to hold up the picture of how that decision was made. And, and that, that, so the book I hope fo- forces us to ask ourselves, um, is this how we want important decisions about our environment and health and safety to be made? Um, And so the book, I hope, will motivate people to seek better ways about making such decisions. Do you mind
0: perhaps going into more detail about how decisions should be made soundly in contradistinction to the ways they were made in what you narrate in your book?
1: Um, That's an interesting question. Again, I'm not sure. In a funny way, the way the decision was made was politics as usual, politicians were the bureaucrats were listening to the politicians, the politicians were listening to um, the constituents, the constituents had a certain got their ideas about what the what was going on at the laboratory from uh, from newspapers. Um and and so in 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 a funny way things were were going on as, as normal. Now ideally, ethically ideally you 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 would say that the media ought to re-examine all of the uh, all the information got to make sure that it was true. That the activists shouldn't, um, you know, spread lies or conspiracy theories about um, about uh, their uh, about the laboratory, and that politicians should decide the right thing. Um, but it, it's it's the 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 way it developed was the way political affairs are decided in the United States. But the um, wait, there's one more. So, for uh, so for instance, I was uh, I was talking to the, a staff member of the de- of, at the Department of Energy, and I asked him. Um, he had been telling me how uh, Senator Damato had been calling the Department of Energy frequently and asking the Department of Energy to do something about the lab to to shut the reactor or whatever, and the um, and I, I I said to him. Is it right that some that a senator from the from the legislative branch should have such influence over someone in the uh, executive branch? And because uh, ideally those two branches should be separate. And the person, the staffer, hesitated and then said, "It's called democracy." And so the way that this was all uh, the, the way that this was unfolding was the way that things. I've always unfolded in the United States and, and in a democracy. So um, I, I, I'm not. I don't have any specific suggestions for making things better. I just wanted to tell the story of how they were made to maybe inspire people to find ways, uh, better ways of making them. I mean, I at, at the end of the book, I, I um, at, at, as you saw, uh, there are a series of reflections. And every once in a while, I would ask people, "What do you think the lessons of this episode were, and how can we avoid doing this, um, doing things in this way, in the future?" And I asked—I don't know—maybe two dozen people, and I got two dozen totally different answers. So um, it's it's very complicated it's a very complicated story. So, and it's not easy to tease out one or more specific tweaks that you can do to fix it. But again, as I said, the, the, the point of the book was to say this, how, this is how the decision was made, um, and to motivate people to seek a better, uh, better ways of making these decisions. To the extent of your knowledge,
0: um, how, how can, American decision-making in regard to science and public policy learned from other countries that might approach things with a different perspective, whether that's, you know, remember what could be learned from the way India responded differently after the Bhopal disaster, or what could Um, be learned from approaches in Europe or Israel or the UK or, or Japan after the Fukushima nuclear disaster. like are there different approaches to science and public policy in other countries that the U.S. would be wise to emulate?
1: Um, I'm not sure because I don't know. I mean, that's a very good question. I don't know how um, science policy is handled in in other countries. And I I definitely should look into that. I mean, that's an important thing to contrast our way of going about it to that in other countries. I know I've heard that in some European countries, there there are... um, there, there are um, councils. I think where the, um, the, the, the scientists and um, and members of the public are uh, uh, get together in large committees, and they discuss the um, and and share information. And in fact, at, 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 after this episode was over. There was a, um, at, at, at Brookhaven, Brookhaven, uh, the, the manager established what were called um, um, community advisor, advisory councils, where they have members of the community, uh, the, the different, uh, the various communities around Brookhaven uh, get together with scientists and, and and other people to, on a regular basis, to talk about issues at the laboratory. And I think that was a very salutary thing. I think that, uh, and, and that has worked for um, for ever since then. Um, in, in a funny way, it resembles the something proposed a long time ago by Thomas Jefferson, whereby uh, in, in, in the so-called ward system, whereby um, people within a certain districts would get together and work together. Um, and that would, according to Jefferson, increase uh, political literacy and something similar might be done with respect to science literacy in this country.
0: To the hint that you're not of your knowledge, um, are there any comparable lessons between what you outline in your book and other scientific disasters in American history, such as the Three Mile Island catastrophe or the Space Shuttle Challenger's explosion? Are there similarities and differences between the lessons that one could derive and take away from other tragedies, or does the Brookhaven? tragedy stand alone?
1: Um, Another interesting question. I think, um, as I think I mentioned, as I may have mentioned, you could think of what happened at Brookhaven as a catastrophe in the engineering sense Uh in which a complicated machine um, becomes out of sync with the environment. A tiny tweak happens and everything falls apart. Now, that that, um, is a good way of describing several of the disasters that you have mentioned, including the uh, Challenger uh, launch disaster. There's a wonderful book written by a professor at Columbia, Sarah Vaughan, called The, the Challenger Launch Disaster, in which he talks about how b- the building of the, the, the entire atmosphere in which the um, Challenger launch decision was made was uh, contributed to the disaster itself, contributed to this kind of going out of sync with the so that all it took was one thing, the, the, the frozen O-ring, in order to make uh, it, it all fall apart. So yeah, I think that but the, the overall structure of what happened at Brookhaven resembled to that extent what happened in the Challenger Launch disaster and maybe a few of the other incidents you mentioned as well. What
0: role did Alec Baldwin play in the events that you narrate in your book?
1: Well, you know, causes thrive on celebrities. They know how to attract attention. They have access to people. Um, They're good fundraisers. They can be crude and rude and get away with it. Well, uh, Baldwin was particularly rude and crude You know, he seems to have had political ambitions at the time. He could pull strings in the media. And he did pull strings in the media. That's how he got himself and and other activists on the Montel Williams show. Um, And if he said something, the media reported it, whether it was true or not. So he had a huge role as a super spreader of misinformation. And he he had meetings, as I describe in the book. He had meetings with scientists. In which he showed disrespect for them, he accused them of lying, he cursed at them, um, and that Montel Williams show that he that he arranged it brought nine million viewers. It um, it provoked hundreds of letters and it had a huge impact on how the, the public perceived the lab. You know, look, look, scientists have very a very modest ability, let's say, to to um, to um, explain what they're doing, the significance of what they're doing to the public. Celebrities have a huge ability to do that, and Baldwin milked that. Mm.
0: Who is Lyle Schwartz? Why is he a person of consequence in the events that you narrate?
1: Um, Lyle Schwartz is uh, an interesting person. He was a scientist who became head of... The organization that managed Brookhaven for the, for its first fifty years, and he was um, so he was president of this managing organization. And when the former director, uh, laboratory director Nicholas Samios, stepped down, the uh, there was a search to find a replacement for Samios, but it was very difficult to find a replacement. Um, in the particular crisis that Brookhaven was in. So as a last ditch thing, Lyle Schwartz stepped in to become director of the laboratory. So he was simultaneously director of the laboratory and president of the organization that was managing the laboratory. Um, This was an incredibly difficult position and it resulted in, um, it, it was basically a huge conflict of interest. Who did he represent? Did he represent the laboratory employees? or did he represent the uh, organization that was managing uh, the laboratory and its employees? And he realized he's a very thoughtful and very um, responsible and honest person, but he was thrust, the circumstances thrust himself into this this very difficult situation. And he had to uh, step down after, I don't know, a month and a half, if, if I remember so um what i mean you ask what his significance was i think one of the, one of the 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 uh, one of the parts of the story is that he would have made a terrific laboratory manager, but he was very scarred and very um uh, he he was very scarred by what happened so so part of the um the uh, disaster of the situation is that is that it made him um, not it it, um, it made him um, it 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 wasted somebody. He, he he could have been a good manager if things had been uh, normal.
0: Who is Patricia Damer? Why is she a person of significance in the events you narrate?
1: She was a member of the uh, she was an official of the Department of Energy and. Um, you know, just honestly, I don't remember the exact title for a position, but she was uh, she was a very important official in the Department of Energy at the time. You quote Ernest
0: Moniz, <laughs> Ernest Moniz as follows: When you are a politician and you are seeing Congress pushing back and you are seeing Long Island pushing back, you know it's going to be a hard slog if you want to reopen the H F B R. Maybe you'll get there, but it's a hard, hard slog. When it comes to being able to start a major facility and your congressman is arguing against it, you haven't done your job. Why is this quote noteworthy? Who is Ernest Moniz? What does the quote mean in the context of your narrative?
1: Well, Moniz was also a Department of Energy um, official, but um, and he makes a very good point. I mean, I as I think I mentioned, I, I asked a lot of people for lessons. What lessons can we derive from this? And they were all different. You know, Martha Krebs said trusting relationships um, and Monique, uh, William Magwood said, don't do anything under the radar, make public uh, what you're doing. And Moni's made uh, a, a terrific point, which is the first thing you do is be on good terms with your local politicians, you know, if you, and and he says basically in that quote, if you're do, if you're, um, if you don't have the local politicians behind you, you're not doing your job. And this was of course, particularly true of Brookhaven, which was the largest employer in Suffolk County. So if, it, if the largest employer doesn't have its politicians behind it, then they, um, they were in trouble. It's in, I mean, it's it's interesting to wonder if Brookhaven had had a very supportive politician like a Senator Domenici behind them, or or you know Representative Sensenbrenner, uh, uh, politicians who were very interested in science. Would the high flux beam reactor still be open? And I think that's that's an open question. If, they, if it had stronger political support, um, the situation might've worked out differently. Who was Judy Jackson? Can you tell us about her
0: and her importance in the events
1: um, of Oh, Judy Jackson was a, um, was a media representative, I think from Fermi Lab, And uh, she just pops up once in the story when she, in the Lessons Learned conference, it, the Department of Energy ran um, which I attended she uh, her first slide was Brookhaven there but for the grace of God. And what that means is what happened at Brookhaven could happen anywhere. It could even happen at Fermilab which doesn't have a reactor. And so basically she was questioning us that you know the, the events would as the events played out at Brookhaven they could play out anywhere so that any large, scientific facility might be just as vulnerable as Brookhaven was. You tell the following story
0: about an event that took place in Denver in 1983 when Pena, who would later become Secretary of Energy, was the mayor. You write as, following, as follows on page 70. During his term, the FBI raided, invaded, workers called it, the Rocky Flats weapons production plant about 20 miles northwest of Denver. And he was highly aware of how serious environmental contamination can be at federal facilities and the dangers of not responding forcefully. In 1993, Peña became President Clinton's Secretary of the U.S. Department of Transportation, during which time his reputation as a leader was sullied for failing to take action against a company with a bad safety record. On May 11, 1996, ValueJet Flight 592 had crashed near Miami. After arriving at the scene of the crash, near the bodies of the 110 victims, Peña had declared ValueJet to be a safe airline. Documents then surfaced, revealing that ValueJet's safety practices were so poor that the Federal Aviation Administration had wanted to ground the plane. This was the first major safety incident that he encountered as energy secretary, and he was incredibly, uh, he was understandably edgy. He had little experience with energy issues, and in 1997 was taking charge of an agency known for infighting. Can you unpack this passage for us and Maybe contextualize it. How does it inform the way we can understand Pena's response to what took place at Brookhaven?
1: Well, the um, when when the leak was announced, the beginning of January nineteen ninety seven, the the major player agency players. Um, in the episode, we're all having leadership changes. The laboratory was changing its director, Associated Universities Inc. was changing its director, that's when Myle Schwartz came in, whom you, whom you mentioned, and the Department of Energy was also j- changing its secretary. The previous secretary had been Hazel O'Leary, um, and she was stepping down, and the new one was, secret- was uh, Federico Pena. Now, what, what, why this matters is that when Pena came in, he was edgy, as as I said, about, um, he was very cautious because he had been burned several times before for, um, by cases where institutions, uh, bad things that happen in institutions, and he, um, that, that should have been handled better so at Rocky Flats for instance which is north of Denver the um Rocky Flats which had been a weapons laboratory had a huge environmental uh, crisis and it was determined that the um uh during the the, the raid that was mentioned that it hadn't hand- handled this very well then at the value jet uh, the value jet episode where the value jet plane crashed and uh F- F- Pena first said that it was um Said that it was a safe airline, and then documents surfaced to show that that um, that it wasn't, uh, to suggest that it wasn't safe. Um, he 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 was very embarrassed by that. That the the, the um, Department of Energy was embarrassed by that. So he comes into the, to contextualize. He comes in and he's hyper and He's hypersensitive. To, he wants to be very very cautious to make sure that something like that doesn't happen again. Who is Marge Lynch?
0: Can you explain her importance?
1: She was head of public relations, uh, media relations at, uh, at Brookhaven. Um, she had, she took over shortly before the old manager was, was fired. And um, she was, uh, and she did a very good job of revamping of the laboratory's pub, uh, media relations um, activities. Thank you very much. And it was an honor to meet videos. you and I
0: wish you the very okay. best. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye for now.